Welcome to Explore Life. I am your host, Greg Dean. At Explore Life, we work on creating inspiring adventures and looking into the meaning of each moment we have. You can also find us on YouTube. Simply search Explore Life Films and hit subscribe. Was your childhood encouraging or debilitating? Did your parents place all of their fears, destructive beliefs and limitations upon you? And are you wanting to break out of that? Or are you just wanting to learn something new and grow? Are you seeking these highs in life that you just can't seem to reach? That no matter where you go and what you do, there just seems to be that one element missing where all you are left with is a memory without any inherent meaning? We have this world of possibility, not only out there, but inside of us. Explore Life will introduce you to men and women who have grasped that lesson and now make the most out of life, even if they are not traveling the globe. People who dive the deepest oceans and have seen living beings you never knew existed. People who have looked into the eyes of a suffering being and have given them loving final moments, as well as people who push their own physical limits and teach that possibility to others. So if you enjoy the sound of that, please make sure you subscribe. But let me warn you now, some of what you hear will absolutely challenge your own morals and values and make you question who you are as a human and how you contribute to the destruction around you. To have an adventurous existence and explore life, we need to first take accountability for all of our own choices and no longer live in ignorance. The amount you suffer in life is dependent upon the amount of suffering you perpetrate on others. And when you consider who we will speak to today, you may completely reevaluate your own peaceful existence. What if I told you that you were intricately involved in the life of my special guest? What if I told you that your very choices in life, day to day, yes, you, have caused this guest to be raised into a world of violence and to eventually attempt suicide? And what if I told you that you were intricately involved in the lives of so many others like him? innocent children to become violent adults. Your simple habits causing innocent children to become extremely violent adult humans. And that is my only request I make to you today. If you stay with me, I guarantee that if you are in any way open-minded and reflective, you will be fascinated with how we all contributed to this man putting a gun in his mouth and attempting to end it all. A previously violent man who committed brutal acts of animal cruelty and how he now actively changes the world around him for the better. I only ask that you look at your simple habits. Are you ready? Let's do this. I want to introduce you to Craig Whitney, the second chance man. A man who meets with hardened prisoners and then listens to and coaches them to become better men when they make it to the outside. A man who captures the attention of the RSPCA and assists those who have committed animal cruelty to rediscover their compassion and empathy. Welcome, Craig. So, you were originally a country boy? Yes, yes. Tell me about that. Well, I was born upside down naked like all of us, so on the farm. I'm an only child by blood. Um, it was an interesting life growing up in the country. I didn't grow up with a lot of the video games and what did the city slickers grow up with. It was more or less a hard life. I was taught 
from a very young age that I had to work hard for everything that I wanted in life. And both my mum and dad pretty well ingrained that into me at a young age because I didn't have any brothers or sisters to play with my whole life pretty much centered around school and working on the farm. What type of farm? Well, dad had a, he was a grazier, so it was beef cattle. And mum had her donkeys. So your mum bred donkeys? Yeah, she ran her own donkey stud. What would she do with the donkeys? Well, her passion was doing donkey rides around markets and festivals. So I would travel with her. I've been to every single market, fate, festival, a show from Woodford all the way through to Tamworth in New South Wales, basically just giving underprivileged and kids in poverty a few minutes of joy in their life. Uh, that was her soul and passion and also an RSPCA advocate for donkey rescue. She was very much passionate on that. So did the donkeys live to an old age and then die of old age? The average donkey lived to about 60 to 70 years old. But your mum wasn't that old, so she took them in as the aged donkeys. Yeah, as aged donkeys, 20 to 30, which is middle-aged in the donkey donkey years bracket, and broke them in, trained them. Now, what do you mean broke them in? Well, breaking breaking a donkey is the same way as breaking a horse or any equine. So you basically humanise it and train it to what whatever you want the animal to do, whether you can ride it, whether you can bomb-proof it at shows, uh, it's it's the same way. As, yeah, it's breaking it. You can you can break in cattle. You can break in horses. It's literally similar similar ways, but the outcome is different to what the use that you want to use the animals for. Okay. Uh, all right. So what I'm getting from that is a couple of things. Is one when you were growing up, you saw animals as an it, and that you had to break them. Is that right? Yeah. So if you wanted to break, if you wanted the saddle break a donkey, you'd break it in so it could be ridden. Same way as you could break a horse, you saddle break it so you can ride it. Otherwise, it would have no respect for its rider and ultimately it would spook and throw you off. What if the donkey didn't want to do that? Did it have any use to your mother? Well, mum wouldn't give up. She'd keep going until it was broken. She did not believe in killing donkeys. It's interesting the language you're using. I don't know if you've noticed that. And this is yes. one thing we'll definitely get into with people yes. who are listening to this in your journey. You were talking in terms of breaking something in. If you were to turn that into a human, how would you break a human in in order to do what you would want that human to do, in your opinion? Well, our social conditioning breaks us in from an early age. As we speak, we get taught early on, or I did certainly did from an early on, habits, routines, what to do, what not to do, rewards and consequences. Um, you know, for example, if you don't do the chores, you'll go to bed hungry. Is there a That's- better term for breaking in? Or Because breaking sounds very destructive and it sounds, if you're indoctrinated into using the words breaking in, you're being indoctrinated into being destructive yeah that was pretty much the term we use training is another term training a horse is no different to training a dog it's just the different behaviors and patterns and again the outcome once again though it's the the word breaking in breaking between the difference between an unbroken donkey and a broken donkey is an unbroken donkey will literally have no respect for riders and will throw them off does not want a rider on their back does not want to do anything yeah, most of the time you can't get near them. 
whereas a broken in donkey is a donkey that you can put a halter on, put a set of reins on, saddle it up, jump on its back, and it will submit to what you want it to do most times. It's once again fascinating to use those words. It's submit, donkeys are, break in. Donkeys are hard, yeah. Donkeys are harder to train than horses because they're very intelligent. Well, do you think that there's a reason why those donkeys would not want a human on their back? Yeah, I do. What would you think that is? Uh, maybe the human's too heavy. Do you want somebody no. on your back? No, I don't naturally want to be ridden. Right. And so do you think that the donkey naturally wants somebody to be ridden? No, I don't. So we have to break the animal in, right? We have to trail it, yes. Yes, in order to use them for a financial gain. And that, of course, allows your allowed your mother to take in more donkeys or rescue more donkeys given the destructive scenario we all face chasing the big dollar or just chasing survival and ensuring that there's food to eat or food to give to the you know to the animals that she takes in that she has to ensure that they are earning their keep exactly right okay so that is another human-centric term let's look at, at your father then so he was a grazier right he owned a farm so yes he owned the land uh, 650 acres. It was essentially a beef cattle producer. So he bred Murray grade and crossed them with Brahma cattle to create a hybrid animal called the Grayman. Was a cow and bull left in a, a field together or was it um, a forced situation? So basically it was, in a, it was in a field. So you put a bull in amongst of uh, cows ready to be mated with and the bull would just go and do his business. You put all the cows and calf, and that was it. There was no, we never did any of the AIs or, or, or any of that stuff. It was just all by natural contraception. Okay. And then what happens and to it, the babies? Well, the calves, the calves would be risen up. They'd be weaned at a natural age, and then dad would decide whether he'd keep the heifer calves uh, to become weaners as restocks uh, or cut the bull calves and, and sell them. The steers, oh, send them into the market. What does that mean? Cutting is a term we call castration. Okay, and then what happens from there when the steer is taken to market? Well, it's basically sold at the fat sale, uh, either to private buyers or directly into the meatworks, the meat, the beef. And would the steer have any say in this, in their own autonomy? No, it was a rinse and repeat every year. Okay, and so getting into that process and seeing that process, what effect do you believe that had on your viewpoint on, on animals and any non-humans and the, the world around you? It conditioned to me that animals were tools. In my early years, Dad taught me the behaviours of what he did on the farm. So he basically taught me to castrate bull calves, taught me how to hot brand, taught me how to earmark, how to tail tag, and literally how to work with cattle. So what are those things, ear tag? Um... Well, we basically we'd pick a wet day, we'd heat up the fire, we'd put the hot brand in, we'd bring the, the mobs of cows in and we'd wean the calves. So essentially leave the calves in the yards and take the mothers away, send the mothers back up to their paddocks. And then work with the calves. So for branding, for instance, you push line of calves down a race and go one for one in a branding cradle. So you brand the calf, you cut the calf, castrate the calf uh, with a pocket knife usually, as the old stockman did for many, many years. 
uh, you'd mark earmarks, so you'd take a chunk out of the year, generally in the marking or the logo or the property owner, in case it was my dad, so it was always an R out of the year. And the hot brand would be a scarring on their rump. So, so how long do you RG. burn the brand on the, the car for? Uh, three seconds, just enough to uh, burn in or scar in the brand. So essentially that's the cow's identification. No anaesthetic? No anaesthetic, nothing. What about the cutting? Tell me about that. Uh, it was a very quick incision, so three to five second job. You literally cut the balls out. Anaesthetic or no anaesthetic? No anaesthetic. So you're essentially cutting the genitals of a living being and the balls come out? Yep. And then what? Well, you give it a hit with iodine so the calf doesn't bleed to death and you let the calf go and... You know, either throw the throw the nuts on the fire for a feed afterwards, or throw them to the dogs. Next calf. And how did the calves react when you cut their balls off with that anaesthetic? Oh, they scream. They naturally scream in pain. And how long for did you find them screaming for? At least a couple of hours after. Really? And they're screaming. Babies are screaming now for the next couple of hours. Yeah. And the burn marks, I imagine. I've, I've burned my fingers before. I imagine if you've ever been burned on the side of your body. So this is a red hot cast iron brand. So it's in the hide. So it's a quick three-second brand into the hide and after scarring the, the property owner's branding. And what about the cutting of the ear? What's that? So it's essentially you take a chunk out of the calf's ear that's essentially your initial or your identification mark. Did you ever connect to how the animals were feeling when you were younger, when you first started doing this? I didn't like it. I, I was upset. Yeah, I was really I was traumatised as a word, yeah. How, how were you traumatised? I was upset about it. I was crying. I was carrying on. I didn't want to do it. But Dad was like, well, this is how you learn. This is what I want you to do. He just kept pressure and pressure and pressure. And essentially, I gave in, essentially, to learn that skill in order to keep my father at bay. So what did you have to bury down deep inside yourself in order to do this? I had to suppress my own trauma. I had to suppress my own pain. And it was also the pain of the animals as well, the pain of the calves. Okay. And how many years did you do that for? Well, I spent the first nine, nine years on the farm of my life until I was taken away. You were taken away? I was taken away by the Department of Child or Community Services, as it was called back then. Uh, docs essentially took me off my family at the age of nine. Do you mind if I ask why? Uh, too much abuse, domestic violence from both my parents, more so my mother than my father. Uh, my mother believed in violently beating me as a way of punishment for you know being a child, uh, being naughty. Uh, Dad believed in spanking, but he never believed in beating. Whereas mum, mum would just go on a raging tyrant. If I did something wrong with mum, it was look out, run. She just went into a psychotic rage and picked up whatever she could find, whether it be a stock whip, whether it be a belt, uh, even to the point of a rifle butt. And on the last instance, it was a stock whip and a rubber mallet, which essentially... I had bruises on me the size of a family dinner plate all over my body and I went to school and that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the dogs, after many, many mornings. It was June 1996 and I was one of the first handful of cases that went through the system when the federal government at that time put their foot down 
for the anti-smacking campaign for kids. So if we were to move forward now, are you still in contact with your parents? Yes, I've rebuilt my relationship with my father. He's now 80. Uh, the farm is now gone, so his identity is lost. Uh, but we have a pretty solid relationship going on, and my mother passed away in cancer back in 2000. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. Um, you've touched on a couple of really powerful points, is that you were indoctrinated into violence from a young age where you first started being forced to cut open the genitals of baby animals. You were forced to brand them with a hot brand, cut their ears, causing them immense pain and crying, and it made you sick and made you cry. And after a lot of conditioning, um, physical conditioning, violent conditioning from your parents, you had to bury that down in order to survive. Exactly. Right? And then you were taken away at a, around age nine. Nine years old, yeah. Wow. And then you didn't go back for a number of years. No, essentially, I was put through the, the New South Wales dock system. So I was put through the Ch Children's Court, made a ward of the state. So my guardianship was surrendered over to the state, and I was put into a permanent foster care till I was 18. And I didn't speak to my parents for two years. How did you cope? What happened? So I got moved into a, a home in Casino, which is basically 80 kilometres east of Benalbo, and I grew up in a public school. So essentially I had to make new friends. I was involved in a different – yeah, I literally had everything overturned. What about your mental state? Yeah, I was pretty traumatised. I sent a counsellor for a few years after I was taken away. I was just really emotional. I was in a state of depression. I was just traumatised. Yeah, it sounds like you've gone through a lot. Yeah. But at the same time, um, you were feeding that violence onwards. Yeah, I was. It's sad, and it's a sad um, indictment of what our society is like. My foster, my foster parents were lovely people. They gave me the, the family life and the love that I wanted, and I actually got to experience growing up with a family of foster brothers and foster sisters, siblings. I had to learn some new skills like sharing. That was that was very new, uh, being an only child. But, yeah, my foster, my foster parents, they were essentially just ordinary people. Did you have any dogs and cats in your life uh, around that time? My foster parents, my foster dad, he was a greyhound trainer at the time. So we always had greyhounds. Oh my goodness, see, you're still in the game here. You haven't escaped the circle of violence. And it was old school style greyhounds, so there was a lot of live baiting and dogging of horses for pet food. First of all, live baiting, what did you witness and what are you talking about in terms of the food? So live baiting, so essentially dad or my foster dad, we had ferrets and we'd use the ferrets because in New South Wales you can go rabbiting. So we go rabbiting warrens around the local area and catch rabbits and kittens and whatever else was down the burrow. And that was that was the term to use as live bait for the greyhounds to, to get them excited to chase a lure. Whenever you're training young pups, that's what you were used to be able to do legally. Um, and then essentially you get... You get that, that prey drive, that prey instinct evolved in the animal, and then once the training's complete, you let the animal, will let the dog rip the animal, the bunny, or the rabbit pieces to get the blood from the mouth. And then essentially you do that repetitively over and over again, 
and then you'll have a dog that will chase a whistling rule around the track. Okay, so let's look through the lens of um, you yourself doing it back then, and let's talk about the animals that you would handle. Uh, how did you hook them up? How did they look at you when you were doing that? What noises did they make? Did you recognize their fear and terror and helplessness? Tell me all about that. So the ferrets were trained to hunt. We'd do our best to sew the, the warren up for no, no escape and send the ferrets in. The ferrets were just prey-driven. They just did their job. It was the rabbits, on the other hand, the screaming and the sheer terror of the rabbits that really triggered me, um, especially when they were being ripped apart by a greyhound. You've taken the rabbits out of the warren and you yep. put them where? Put them in a cage, essentially mm-hmm. the cage. Uh, they kept alive and they brought back and they're fed and watered and they're just taken one by one as time progresses for training until there's no more rabbits. Okay, so what's the process for hooking the rabbit up? What did you notice? What? Um... So, you, so you put the animal in a, in a white paper bag, you tie the white paper bag up firmly, not too tight, but tight enough to hold the rabbit from escaping, and then you wrap that around a, a long circular lure, which is hooked to a pivot in the ground, and then that moves in a 360 or a circle dimension. And then you get the dog excited by a squeaky toy to get its attention, and then you bring the pup on, and then essentially you use the squeaky toy to keep the attention with the screaming of the rabbit to hold that focus of the pup. And then you take the, the squeaky toy away, and then essentially that dog is now engaged with that rabbit with a muzzle on, and he's trying to kill that rabbit. And essentially the rabbit's screaming for its life. You, you do that for three to four laps minimum. And the rabbit's screaming this whole way? It's screaming for its, for its life. It's blindfolded. It's, there's something putting pressure on it. Doesn't know how the dog's barking. Um, it's it's just blinded, blind terror. And how long did you do this for? It was a few years, uh, at least three years, up until I was fourteen, and then Dad retired from greyhounds. He had enough. So what happens to the greyhounds? Well, out of a litter of pups of say twelve pups. Two would be the keepers and the rest you, you'd shoot, traditionally shoot, because they'd be no good. You had greyhounds on the property and they weren't fast enough, so what happened? So basically, I'll, I'll take you back to a time where I had to prepare the ditch for a dog to be shot. So my dad asked me to, he gave me a shovel, and if I wanted pocket money, I would dig the ditch. He gave me the exact measurements. It was to be three foot deep, exact. He gave me a shovel and he was to pay me $20 to dig the hole. And he gave me a location. It was up the paddock and it was out of sight away from the house. So I went about it. I dug the ditch. He paid me the money. I remember he took this as a beautiful brindle dog up to that exact spot. And he had a rifle in his hand and I didn't see it. I just heard two gunshots, one after the other. And then dad come back with a rifle and a lead. And I'll put two and two together. I like, okay. And then I asked Dad, I was like, well, what'd you do? What'd you shoot a dog for? Was there something wrong with it? Because I knew instinctively from the farm that if an animal was sick or in due pain or in some sort of pain beyond repair, the natural instinct to do to an animal was to put it out of its misery in the most humane way. Because I'd seen my father shoot animals before, my instinct drove me to ask. 
And my foster dad asked me, well, the dog was no good. It wasn't making money. Therefore, we just shoot dogs that don't make money because that's the greyhound business. And that was quite rampant. Quite common. Wow. That's nuts. That's kind of affected me, man. Do the numbers. With every litter of pups, you'll have two that'll keep on average. Okay. So how many times did you hook up a rabbit? I did it probably 10 times over that course. How did you feel the first time you did the rabbit? I didn't like it. I felt triggered. It really triggered me to a point of asking, why am I doing this? And my foster dad, he told me, this is the way we train greyhounds. We're blooding a dog. That's the term, blooding a dog. And when the dog wasn't fast enough? Yeah, if the dog wasn't fast enough on its trial times on the greyhound tracks or it didn't win money, that was the end of its career. And then you would be paid $20 to dig a hole. Did you ever connect to the animals on a one-to-one basis or did you keep them as a product in your head? I connected to them as a pet. There were dogs there that I'd spend time with. I essentially took on a greyhound and worked with a greyhound. That one, that ended up winning some significant money. And that was one of the last greyhounds that my foster dad sold because he retired out of the industry. And did you ever feel their fear? Did you ever connect to that or did you have to bury that down? I felt their fear and I did ask over and over, why are you doing this? And my foster dad would just, yeah, he'd just say the same question over and over again. So he basically pre-programmed me in essence that dogs were a product. Same yeah, as same the as carbs, carbs same as the donkeys? Yeah, pretty much. Same as the rabbits? Yeah. yeah the end of the day, animals were there to make money off. Once again, it comes back to what autonomy did these animals have over their own life? What choice did they have in what was happening to them? Exactly right. My foster dad retired out of the game when finally the New South Wales government cracked down on live baiting and outlet. What was the next phase for you? Was that working in a slaughterhouse or was it going hunting? The next phase for me is I, I applied to get into the Navy from high school. And that was my ultimate goal. I set myself up pretty much as a one-track wonder to get into the Defence Force. I had a passion for IT. I loved computers and I loved I loved pulling computers apart, putting them back together again, programming. And I got obsessed with missiles for some reason. And I thought, well, if I could get in the, in the, into some sort of role, I could put two and two together. And then the Navy came to my high school and put on a big recruitment drive. And I got interested in that. So I, I set myself up for that, which didn't end up coming through. I ended up failing my high school grades and then got offered to do it again. Then I said no, and then I gave up on the Navy. And then I bludged around for, for a couple of years, 17, 18, and sitting around on Centrelink, not doing much. And then my foster parents gave me the option to either go back and study or move out. And I moved out, and I essentially moved into town with a beautiful family who took me in as a boarder, and then gave me the break I needed, which was to help me um, get my driver's license and essentially get work, which I started off in a sawmill. And that lasted six months. And then my two mates, my schoolmates, contacted me to come to Inverell with them to work at a slaughterhouse out there uh, and get full-time work. And be with my mates, just like the old days at high school. You've touched on some really eye-opening moments for me. And do you know what they are? What's that? All your life, 
you have been forced into violence and the careers you have chosen have been anti-violence. So growing up, you were forced to hurt cattle, hurt animals, you know, slice them open, hear them cry, hook up rabbits uh, who were screaming as they were brought around a racetrack, um, dig holes for dogs that you knew that you had connected to that were going to die. All of that was forced on you. And then you left and you were looking for careers that had nothing to do with personal violence. You were moving into computers. You were fascinated by missiles, the technical side of these things, engineering essentially. Mm, I love IT. Uh, That was one of my strength points in high school. I was very technical. I was never a numbers person, but give me give me an old computer that was on the verge of going in the school skip bin and I'd pull it apart and that would be my project to tinker around with until I can get it back operational and log into Windows again. You've been trying to avoid violence. Yeah, pretty much. Fascinating. So then what happened? So you were invited to work at a slaughterhouse. Yeah, I essentially went out in Easter long weekend of 2005 to Inverell, which is Western New South Wales, and I ended up staying with my two best mates at the time. They were both named Matt, Matt and Matthew. Uh, we were schoolmates, went back many, many years, and essentially I ended up staying there. So I went from a holiday to moving out there, and I got a start at Bindery Beef, which is an abattoir at Western New South Wales. Okay, so the, the uh, only people who were willing to give you a chance were people that were going to force you to commit violence. Pretty much, yes. And where you wanted to head your career due to the situation that your foster parents and your real parents put you through, it held you back into getting the career that you actually wanted to do. Exactly right. It really speaks volumes to me because there are people who haven't led that world of violence but their parents make them consume products derived from the violence that you committed so they in essence participate in breeding children who become you know people that you became exactly well the consumer ends all about creating addicts to a system that feeds while i would never say her name i think of one person i know that has said to me that me feeding meat to my children is a choice and i had always thought this thought what's their choice what are you forcing them to do why aren't you giving them a choice why aren't you telling them the truth why do you take them to animal sanctuaries and then go home and feed them these same animals without having them connect the dots why can't you let them choose whether they want to choose kindness because you haven't had that situation you were forced into it that i can see and you chose to try and get away from it into something like computers exactly right it's just fascinating because your yours is the darkest story of the average consumer yeah exactly so let's talk about that so now you call it an abattoir but that's a french term if we look at it, what it is, it's a slaughterhouse. It's a slaughterhouse. Uh, you, go, you go to different towns, they call it different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slaughterhouse is fine. It's essentially what it is. Call it for what it is. Yeah, Inverell's where I made my break for the next two years of my life. I lived out there and it was the most craziest form of my life. Tell me about I it. What happened? I got myself into trouble. I got addicted to alcohol, addicted to cigarettes, smoked a fair bit of weed. Uh, we'd go out and get drunk just about every night after work. We'd go to work drunk. I got 
I was offered a full-time role. I took it up. I was just comfortable. I got addicted to hunting. The, the boys took me out hunting on weekends and we went chasing pigs, roos, and whatever else we could kill that was legal. It was just a, it was a, an endless cycle of comfort out of that life. Not for the animals that you committed violence upon? No, no. I started my um, slaughterman trade out, out there as well. I did both my Cert 2, which is my packing and labouring, and I started my Cert 3 and my Cert 4 and my traineeship, which is meat processing, and I chose the slaughterman angle instead of the slicing and boning. Your languaging throughout this interview is really revealing as well because you're, you're trying to connect what you want your life to be to a new realm of possibility because my understanding is you're a vegan animal rights activist now as well as the second chance man. Yeah, my whole mission is to combine activism. It's like I can't leave one without the other. If I go if I go just on straight vegan animal rights activism, I leave one half of my life out of the picture. And if I go and advocate just on mental health, the same is said about vegan animal rights. It's like I'm trying, I'm attempting to combine it all together because it's been part of my journey. It's I'm revealing a whole. 100% of my journey, not segments. That makes sense. Absolutely. So let's talk about life in the slaughterhouse. Connect me to the animal. Take me through the process of the slaughter man and the workers around that and the animals. I want to see how that plays out. I want to see how you've been affected, whether you were ever affected, whether you looked into their eyes, You know, whether you connected to their sentience and intelligence. I want to see how that works. I want to see how that played out in your career and in your head. My career, my labouring career, I spent a number of it looking at the eyes of dead animals that the fear had been squashed out, that the fear had been taken, or essentially their life had been taken. My early days on the floors uh, was a floor boy. My whole uh, chunk where I'd I'd work on my territory would be literally from the knocking box all the way to the bleed rail, and I'd be literally dodging freshly uh, slaughtered animals or cows. The look on their eyes was basically fear and terror. Well, their life was either ended or on the brink of being ended. And part of my job is I had to dodge bodies that had been freshly slaughtered. So the nerves had kicked in. My job at the time came with a fair bit of risk because of the cattle's twitching, there'd been a few fellows who'd been critically injured before me from doing that job of being kicked in the chest or kicked in the head. An act of karma and revenge. Yeah, it's the same reaction to when you cut the head off a chicken and let the chicken run around. It's essentially nerves, but with cattle, with large livestock. Now, that took me at least three months to adapt to, to get used to, but I forced myself to get through it because I needed a job, I needed money, and this was a gateway for me to pay for my, my life at the time. And seeing the terror, yes, it was, ter- it was terrible to see. It, it was tormenting to look at. I couldn't look at a cow's face for a long time while I did that job. Why? Because it's just the terror in their eyes. That was the driving force that I forced myself to look away. Plus, I heard the screaming from the knocking box every time I went up there. Things people don't see, hey? No, the average consumer wouldn't do what an avatar worker would do. If we were to go further into that, you then spent time on the kill floor? Essentially, I worked my way up the chain. So I learned different jobs. I got a knife in my hand and I started doing knife hand jobs and to learn 
on how to hone and sharpen a knife. And that was essentially where I ended up with a knife in my hand when pre-trimming jobs. And then eventually I got worked my way up into the knocking box and essentially learned how to shackle and then shoot and essentially then to slaughter. Tell me about uh, a standard situation because my understanding is that quite often the, the bolt gun doesn't work. About 60, 50 to 60% of the time there's always a restun. Yes, a secondary restun. Um, it's not supposed to happen, but it does happen. Take me through uh, that. Well, the cows hunted or herded into the knocking box by the knocker. It's essentially the back door is closed, so there's no point of exit. And there's just enough room for the cow to move, but not enough room for it to fully turn around. So essentially it's locked in. Um, some knocking boxes have a head bale to, to keep the animal still. Others don't. Uh, essentially, I was trained with a head bale, so we'd get the cow to walk into the head bale, lock its head in place, and then the stun stun gun, because we used an air-compressed stun gun, would be perfectly placed between the eyes, and then the trigger would be pulled, and then a captive bolt would, be, would penetrate the cow's skull and into the brain and essentially render the cow unconscious to a point of no return. And then the cow was dropped down the chute onto the rail, so below the knocking box, essentially where she was rolled over onto the back where the slot or the stick would take place. Now, then her throat was cut from left to right, severing the windpipe all in one motion as quickly as possible to minimise the risk because there was at times where a cow would reawaken from a poor stun. What happened there? Uh, Tell me about that. Well, there was one instance where a cow come down the chute. She wasn't stunned properly. She managed to get back up on her feet and nail it down the kill floor in utter fear. She got past the sticker. She got past the shackler and essentially all the way down down to into the kill floor itself uh, where other workers were. She was just scared in fear. She was stunned once, so still a bit groggy, but just running out of blind fear. Uh, it was deemed a safety hazard, and a foreman had to come over. The workers had to corner her, but not pin her physically, just corner her to a point of standing still while the foreman put two bullets between the eyes, and essentially all heap of workers then had to put her on a trolley and hoist her, push her back around to the knocking box, and then shackle her on the chain to go through the process. Were you there for that? Yes, I was. I seen it. I witnessed it. And did you ever look through the eyes of that cow? I was surprised that something like that would happen, and I felt a sense of terror, yes. I felt a sense of fear. Uh, I felt the adrenaline rush. I felt an animal that was scared out of its wits because of a procedure that didn't go right. But I treated it like my job, and I did question my supervisor, which would end up being a good training experience for me as I was up in the knocking box learning to, you know, going through the protocols of my training shit. Well, how, how do you feel that the average consumer would view this or feel about this if they were in this situation and had not been exposed to violence as you had been all your life? There would be a strong reaction but there'd be no connection between a cow and the end product. They don't see it, do they? People don't no, see it. Meat, meat workers have a notorious reputation of being criticised by the consumer that they serve because of the actions that they take. 
Tell me about that. What do you mean? Well, they're always being criticised out in public. The classic question is, what do you do for work? My obvious reaction is, I'm a slaughterman out of Pindaree. Oh, you're one of those cruel bastards. But they pay you. They're paying your wage. Exactly right. So these people say you're you're one of those cruel bastards, and then they'll go and buy a steak. Exactly right. They'll go and buy a burger Mm. from a an act of violence that you committed for them so they didn't have exactly to see right. it. Exactly right. What do you think about that? Absolutely hypocritical. How, why do you believe it's hypocritical? Tell me your thoughts. Because the majority of consumers out there won't do the work that feeds them in what they want in the first place. They've had all the hard work taken out of for an end product. The average bum at home with with a family of kids wouldn't kill an animal. No way. That says a lot about human nature. There is a bit of empathy for for the welfare side, but there's no empathy for the consuming of the end product side. There's one other aspect about the slaughterhouses, and that is the pregnant cows. Yes. 70% of cows, female cows that go through kill floors are in calf. They're pregnant. Uh, Yes, at different trimesters. So cows uh, have four trimesters and they come through the knock and box at different trimesters. And even some would go into calf under stress within the knock and box or within the coming up the, the, the chute. Because they're trying to protect their child, their unborn baby. Well, well, they're in fear mode, fight or flight. And if a cow's in calf, well, the natural thing is, is to offload the calf, give birth to the calf so they can get a clear getaway. Some calf uh, while they're coming up into the race, others calve while they're in the knocker box. So they and give some birth. Carve, yeah, yeah, some carve after they've had their throat cut out, the act of nerves. It's a surreal experience to witness. How so? Uh, oh, it's pretty f- haunting if you ask me. Yeah, just seeing an unborn calf, you know, at different stages of growth being birthed whether it's something as size of your hand or, or a full-grown calf ready to ready to come out, born. It's triggering. How? Well, emotionally, because like, the workers are the ones that have to clean it up and they it triggers them right off. It's like, yeah, just in anger. What do they do with the baby? Well, they sweep it up and throw it down the waste chute. Alive? Because if it's too big, well, it's taken to the fetal room and let out for its blood. If it's too small, it's thrown down the, uh, the the chute, which grinds up all the end product into blood and bone. What's the fetal room? The fetal room is basically where the placentas go, come in and unborn calves are cut out and they're measured. And if they cut uh, meet specification in length, then, uh, then an incision is made to the calves heart and uh, a tube is placed in and literally the heart is pumped dry of its blood and this is where the the blood fetal blood comes from that's sold to the pharmaceutical industry for one thousand dollars a litre if not more for medical research essentially red gold let's look at the calf let have you done this yourself i haven't done the role myself but i've witnessed it being done many many times all right take me through the process uh, in detail they're cut out of the cow alive yes alive um, they're thrown down a chute are they blinking at this point crying at this point what's the some are blinking some have their eyes open they're in a state of shock and others are dead their eyes closed some are pretty much alive ready to come out to be born into the world 
and they're throwing down the chute, which that chute leads to the fetal room, uh, down into onto a belt where the workers pick the placenta up. They literally fought, they cut the placenta open like a forced birth, pull the calf out at any random stage, it doesn't matter, up on to a table, measure it. If it meets the measurement standards required, it's then hung up on a hook. Alive? Yes, up onto a mini sort of chain. And then an incision is made into its heart, and that's where a tube's put in, and the blood's pumped out through that tube. How is the in. calf at this point? Conscious, not conscious? Some are conscious. Some can be heard screaming. Uh, others aren't even alive. They've been smothered. The ones that do are alive, essentially, they have their throat cut out of their misery. I remember you saying to me that you were particularly affected by looking into the eyes of one of these calves once. Are you able to take me through that experience? Yes, that was an experience. Uh, it was a nightmare that stuck with me for many, many years. And I named that calf Shadow. It was a traumatizing nightmare. Yeah, it, it stuck with me over and over. She was a beautiful black bully calf. I was Passing through one day in particular in the fetal room, and I noticed this beautiful calf. Uh, she'd just been pulled out of the placenta. She was up on the hook. She had the incision made. A tube was in. And then the look, it was, uh, it was more the look that captured my attention. And that look, that look of life, just cherished, just passing it branded into my mind did you see the life draining out of him or her yes a beautiful black angus calf yes i've seen the life draining out i was two foot away um he blinked once twice and a third time then there was stillness it was a lifeless stare into me his life had passed his spirit was free his image ingrained into my head Wow. Down into my head. Mm. And that stuck with you? Yeah, it stuck with me. Okay. So let's look at hunting then, because your friends got you addicted to hunting. Yeah, I was never, when I grew up on the farm, Dad Dad taught me to shoot a rifle, but because we never had wild pigs or anything like that, we just had the odd wild dog or the odd fox that would come around. And Dad taught me to shoot dogs, wild dogs and foxes. But I got the taste of chasing pigs. It was something, it fascinated me at the time and it was something the boys did on a regular basis. We'd go out on the weekends, go camping, out on properties and just chase pigs for the thrill of it because we knew wild pigs were a pest. A pest? How a pest? Yeah. Well, they destroy environments, they destroy crops, they kill small, they kill calves. Which is what you uh, did? Yes, uh, and they were essentially a burden to the farmers. So the pest becomes a pest because the wild animal cannot make money for the farmer and it essentially takes money from the farmer. Exactly right. Okay. Otherwise, we call them pests even though they're just trying to survive. Exactly right. So how would you do this hunting? What happened? Well, the average hunter like me, we learnt with knives and dogs. So essentially I was given two hunting dogs my first two hunting dogs, and we'd go out on a Saturday night, spotlighting a few of us and our dogs. Uh, there'd be a crew of us driving the ute, and we'd let the dogs, what we call finders off, to go track the pigs. 
And then once the finders found a pig, they latched on and you could hear the barking. You could tell they got a pig because of the way they barked. And then you let we let more dogs off the back of the ute, what we call the luggers, would, that would run to the balers or the trackers. And then they would essentially lug the pig down by the ear to hold it until the hunters turned up. And then we'd circle the pig. The dogs would be on the pig, pinning it. Uh, one of us hunters would go up behind and catch it by its rear legs. So it's essentially up on its front legs. Another would pull the dogs off and then we'd roll it over on its back. And then essentially a sticker would come in and we'd stick the pig with a knife into its heart. So behind the left shoulder. How did you feel about doing that? I didn't feel anything when I hunted because I was so conditioned. It's like, oh, well, we're getting rid of a pest. It was like shooting a wild dog or a fox. It's like, well, this is harming another animal. But you harmed other animals. All your yeah. life? Yeah. Did you see the hypocrisy in yourself? No, I just did it. And I, it was basically, I was with mates who did it anyway, and we just did it. It's amazing because you've, you've gone from a child who was upset about hurting animals to somebody that looked at these animals more or less like a pest, no more than a mosquito or that you slapped down. Exactly right. Look through the eyes of the pig now. Tell me about it. What, what do you feel they're feeling? Fear, terror. But just for a moment, let's even step further back. You know, you, you're the pig and you hear the truck roll up and you hear the docks and people are coming at you. What, what other emotions apart from fear would you say there is? Confusion? Terrifying, confusion. You were living in a world of peace. You were just peaceful, just living your life, obviously, in your own nature. In the life you had been born in, into that forest or land, and suddenly you're fighting for your life. Absolutely fighting, yeah. Imagine if that was yourself or you were a minority group. Back in the day, they would, um, you know, long, long time ago, they would hunt black people or they would do that to homosexual people, but they were able to say, don't, please, don't hurt me. Yeah. But now this pig, which is quite intelligent, is fighting for his or her life, trying to get away. And then the life is drained from that animal, from somebody that did not live there, somebody who encroached on his land or her land and attacked her. Have you ever connected to that, like as a hunter? Like later on, I remember that you were seeking, you know, forgiveness and you were going to sanctuaries and things like that. Did you ever, did you connect to all of those now that it's all started bubbling up? Yes, I reconnected. Uh, once I seen black pigs, I reconnected the dots. That's when it all made sense. It was when I moved to Queensland or to Ipswich at the time in 2007. That's when I distanced myself away from hunting. And I remember when you and I were um, on social media, and this is before you uh, went down the path of becoming a vegan animal rights activist and second chance man, and uh, you were trolling me saying, well, I'm going hunting this weekend. I remember that specifically. Did you hunt while you were in Brisbane? I did from time to time, but I made sure if I went away for a weekend hunting, it was worth the weekend. I'll go away for three, four, sometimes five days at a time, uh, up north, actively shooting, pigging, whatever I was doing at the time. As long as you were taking pig. life? Yeah, we'd be pigs, 
ca- camels, wild horses, wild cattle, whatever was on the target at the time. Did you ever shoot and it, it did not kill immediately and you had to look over their body as they were dying? Plenty of times. Had to go back for another shot. Tell me about that. Yeah, seeing a dying animal on the ground, screaming in pain. From what I remember, yeah, it was triggering up to a point of ending the animal's life as quickly as possible. Which never needed to end in the first place. Exactly right. And what about the dogs? Did you ever lose any dogs? We lost plenty of dogs over our time, and the hunters just didn't care. Vet bills were too expensive. If the injuries were too severe, they'd just shoot the dogs. Wow. There was plenty of pups around. There was plenty of uh, backyard breeders around. We always get another pup. And uh, were you still in the slaughter industry at that time? Yeah, I was. I moved to Ipswich and I literally how I got into the city was I followed the beef industry. I went from one slaughterhouse to another. Uh, Were there any experiences that you had at Ipswich that stood out to you? Uh, The workers were far more rebellious, far more angrier. It was a different shed. Um, the conditions were worse. How did they treat the animals? You said there were angry uh, people there. Tell me about yeah, how that would angry. act out. Well, knockers, for instance, would beat the animals in anger if they didn't do what they were told uh, or use excessive amounts of electricity through the cattle prods. So how would they beat the, the cattle before they killed them if they weren't cooperating in their own death? Well, the cattle was... Cattle, cattle wouldn't move forward. And of course, the knockers by instinct are trained, were trained at the time to use a cattle prodder or, or a um, stick and hit them to move them forwards. And would they because swear at the animals? Were they... Well, they were swearing at the animals. They were angry. They were just disturbed, yeah. I, I suppose that if you conduct violence each and every day, that swearing, yelling and abusing becomes natural. Yeah, it does. It's essentially the consumer who goes out shopping, buys meat and buys dairy, is creating violent people who commit violent acts that have violent nature. Exactly right. So people I know personally who don't take these animals off their plates, they are participants in in domestic abuse, uh, abuse of animals. People who take that anger home with them at the end of the day? Yes. Dinmore was the very first shed that I got to experience a wide uh, net of different cultures of workers and a lot of workers that come from jail or the correctional services sector. Uh, I heard a lot of stories and I got to learn. I learned a lot about people pretty quick. Tell me about it. So the refugees, I got... I made friends with a lot of refugees out there pretty quick and they'd tell me about all their war stories back home, particularly the Africans. They're, they're so open. I mean, they're a lovely culture. But, yeah, the war stories of the, particularly in Sudan with the warring tribes of, you know, acts of cannibalism, how little generals would go behind the enemy lines and kidnap kids and kill them and essentially eat their heart out as a, as a way of intimidation to the to the enemy tribes. One story I remember in particular was a general of a small tribe who kidnapped a boy from a rivaling tribe. He cut his throat, killed him, drank his blood and cut his chest open and ate his heart and essentially molested him as an act of intimidation on a warring tribe of like, we're coming for you. 
Uh, that that caught my attention. That that really opened my up. I was like, wow. What, you know, you work in an avatar. What the hell? What are you doing? Wow. And I heard other stories of fellas coming out of jail for armed robbery, assault, domestic violence, drug abuse, all the way up to first-degree murder. So this refugee was escaping Sudan? I, I took an African as an African. I did not really pay much attention to the different subcultures. But they I were, just listened to their stories. But they were escaping a world of violence, right? Oh, mate, yeah. Yeah. And they come over to this country with absolutely nothing apart from themselves and their family. And what are they expected to do when they get here? Well, the government gives some money, gives them some money to get themselves set up, get them a house and basic essentials, and then puts them in unskilled work. Yeah, but not just unskilled uh, work. Yeah. They come over, yes. escape a, a world of violence where... They are witness to some horrific acts. They escape that country to come to a land of peace. And what are they expected to do when they get here? Commit more acts of violence. Yeah. For non-vegans, for essentially for yeah. non-vegans, right? Exactly right. Anybody who wants to consume meat and dairy are now participants in bringing refugees over who escape a world of violence desperately seeking a new place in Australia to live in peace and are forced to commit new acts of violence on a day-to-day -day basis just so somebody can have a burger. Exactly. So it brings in the humanitarian abuse as well as animal, animal abuse. Absolutely. It's, it's horrifying. And this whole chain is kept from everybody, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's, what was the catalyst for leaving the industry behind? I had enough of that shed. I had enough of working long hours for little money and I wanted to go elsewhere, essentially. Was there any guilt at that point? It didn't. None of, none of the trauma hit me at that point. I just wanted out. And I left that shed and I started at one over at Cannon Hill and I lasted a couple of years there. What so, about the animals? Well, the animals went through the same sort of trauma, just in a different location. But I was getting better money. What was the catalyst to leaving the industry behind? Yeah, August 2013, I walked away from the industry after a seven-year career. It was essentially, I mentally and physically had enough. My head was burnt out and my body was physically burnt out from the industry and I wanted to change. And I was willing to do anything to do that. The encouragement came from a mentor I acquired at the time who really spurred into me positive information through books and different business ideas that I was foreign to hearing. Gave me a sense of hope. What happened? That there was, well, essentially I was shown a network marketing presentation and I was given hope that I could change my life. And I started, I started reading these books and it started to have an effect on my perception of life. And the catalyst started where I went, started going back to work and I started telling people about reading these life-changing chapters of these books and I'll get laughed at. And the catalyst was, it's like, it started, it's like I just, I had trouble communicating. I'd gone from someone who swore a lot, who smoked a lot, who drank a lot, to someone who started a bit more upbeat and positive, who was evolving or growing outside of that box. And I had someone pushing me, it's like, well, you can do better than this. 
you're better than this. You uh, weren't vegan at this point, though, right? No, no, no. This was August uh, 2013. And you were still going hunting at this time? I was semi-active in hunting, yes. Okay, so I want to move forward a little bit because... Yep. It starts getting quite dark in your head. So I want to uh, understand that because it seems that everything started catching up with you. Tell me what started happening that it started catching up with you and how it manifested. All of that violence throughout your life, all of that life taking, looking into the eyes of that little baby as his life was taken away from him and fading away from him. And how it built up, how did it manifest, what happened? Tell me that story. So beginning of 2017, I got myself into a relationship. I not long sold a business career franchise, which I've done very well out of, but I created a monster. I essentially burnt myself out from it. And this relationship started to trigger me on different points on the inside. And essentially, the more arguments we had, the more differences we had, the more nightmares I started to have And it was interesting because she tied a lot of the arguments back to animals. And that was somehow the trigger effect that that these nightmares started to appear. I started seeing shadow again. I started seeing animals screaming on the kill floors uh, where I'd worked in previous years. I started essentially seeing early childhood trauma of screaming potty calves back in the yards on the farm. And I tried explaining to that, but she laughed it off and laughed at me and humiliated to me and told me it was crazy, which leads me to my trigger of my breakdown. And back in November 2017, it was the end of this relationship. Basically how it ended was we had an argument over money and then, then she told me her lines were exactly, I was pregnant, I had an abortion, and this relationship is now over. And I didn't know she was pregnant. Like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. That was the essential trigger of the start of my breakdown. And I had, I had the Marima sheep dogs at the time. I had my other dogs all at the time. I let her go, and I, went, I took myself into complete isolation. And, of course, I had this sick puppy with me. And I just felt this need to take my anger out. I felt the need to rage. To cut a long story short, I ended up breaking down, and the end product was I ended up beating a puppy to death as a result direct repercussion of my anger and yes it was wrong and I panicked after the act and I attempted to cover my evidence by knowing that the local river down the road had had a tidal movement if I could get rid of the body maybe a hungry shark or something would turn up and take it away for me so I ended up disposing her body uh, down the local river, and my plan didn't go to action. Subsequent to events that the body washed up and it was picked up, and I ended up getting reported into the local RSPCA, and hence raided, and had all my animals taken away, which started a lengthy legal proceeding, which lasted till about September 2018, which sent me into a total world of ego and isolation whether I attempted to bury myself in work uh, because I didn't know how to handle myself as a man at that time. Wow, what a huge thing. And I remember when it showed up on social media and I said, Craig, is this you? Yeah. 
Yeah, 21st of September 2018, I finally was sentenced uh, to two acts, three charges of animal, one act of animal cruelty and two two acts of breach of duty of care. Yeah, it exploded in such such a short time. I was in crisis mode at that time. Um, I literally, I hid all through my sentencing. I hid. I just didn't know how to be a man. I didn't know how to show up for myself. I didn't have any support. I didn't know how to ask for help, literally as a man. Um, and after my sentencing, I, I attempted to take my life and failed. What happened there? At the twenty. 20- 2nd of September, I purchased a firearm, a 38 caliber Smith & Western pistol off a former customer of mine from my transport business, who I'd done a lot of business with, and I travelled all the way up to Innisfail and booked myself into a dingy caravan park, and that's where I decided that would be it. Uh, that would be the end of my life. I was way out of anyone's radar. I was over 1,500 kilometres away from home, so... It wouldn't have mattered whether or not it happened or not. No one would notice. And I remember on the night it actually happened, I had the firearm in my mouth. It was fully loaded with six shots, so I didn't want to miss. So I had no intentions of missing. I had the pistol in my mouth and I was clicking. I literally was discharging a fully loaded pistol and the gun wouldn't discharge. So essentially the bloke who sold me the firearm sold me a dud either a dud firearm or a firearm loaded with dud bullets. And after the third click, I literally had the barrel in my mouth. After the third click, my phone rang. And I don't know if it was a miracle or it was the first stage of my awakening. I don't know what it was, but it was a very conscious man at the time who cared to call at that time to essentially provide the help that I craved for, which essentially brought me back to reality. Who was that? He was a very good friend of mine. Um, he's also vegan. So he was vegan at the time? Yeah, he was vegan. He done a lot of. He was doing a lot of men's work and a lot of animal rights work as well. He was courageous enough to care for the fact to give me a phone call to check out if I was okay and gave me the space I needed to hear, hear me out and to share my story, what was going on inside me, which in turn brought me back to reality. What was your next step? To come back with this man's support and get the crisis support I needed to settle my mind, to get myself out of that suicidal thinking and into the arms of a GP so I could get the proper support I needed, you know, an emergency psychologist and in turn taken into an organisation by the name of the Mankind Project to get me around other mature men to get me the support I needed to essentially save my life or help me save my own life. What do you think the reasons were for you for wanting to take your life at that time? I look back at it now. I was shamed so badly, so I was carrying a lot of shame and guilt from my sentencing. Plus, I was carrying a lot of unresolved trauma, which just fueled everything. And I was to the point that I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't know how to process shame. I want to cover two moments that I was involved with in your journey, okay? And the first part was seeing your photo show up on a dog page. Um, It was a rescue dog page of some kind, animal lovers. No, it wasn't animals. it It was a dog lovers page. And it was sharing your image. 
and I thought to myself, I know that guy. I didn't know that. He's, this is the guy I've known for years when, um, who, who attended my seminars years before um, and I'd had dinner with you a few times and I didn't know all of this stuff. And I said, Craig, is this you? And you said to me, yeah, my past is catching up with me. I said, past? This was not that long ago. And you were trying to play it down a little bit and you were playing it cautiously. And I remember just seeing so many hateful comments on this dog page. And to be honest, it actually pissed me off. And I said to you, I've got a choice here. I can either block you or we really need to start making some changes because in my world, I'm a a vegan animal rights activist myself. Um, I'd been vegan for a bunch of years and I was really just finding the world of vegan animal rights activism leading up to that just in the the previous uh, you know couple of years prior it opened me to a whole new world of people that were putting everything on the line of trying to rescue as many animals as humanly possible from the brainwashed ignorant consumer and people such as yourself at the slaughterhouse and i said to you i've got a choice here i can either block you and just remove that negativity out of my life or i can stay with you and we can work together. And you wanted me to stay. I remember that. But you obviously had another um, vegan friend influence there as well. To my end, from what I saw from the people that I introduced you to, there were other vegan animal rights activists that were very welcoming of you. So they were more forgiving you, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Tell me about that. What, what is your thought process when you see the hateful world of non-vegans who are so angry about you killing a dog but don't even bat an eyelid when you're slitting the throats of calves and cows. It's absolute hypocrisy. There's there's no connection whatsoever. The only connection they have is for their pets, but not for the animals that go through on a daily basis. And the vegan animal it's, rights activists, how would they react? Forget the groups. We're talking about the individuals. We'll cover the groups yeah. in just a moment. But the individuals. Yeah. I needed all the support I could get. I was in a, in a desperate state mentally. I needed that support. I needed that compassion, some sort of compassion, maybe a place of safety or all around of people of safety where I could... I could feel supported because I felt everyone was against me at that time. In fact, it was all the non-vegans that were against you. Yeah, yeah. The people who consumed the very animals that you killed for them were against you and the vegan animal rights activist individuals, not the groups, there was a couple of groups there that just didn't gel, that were quite hypocritical and we'll cover that in just a moment as well, but it was the large group. I mean, we're talking about mass population of Facebook keyboard warriors that were so hateful of you for killing a dog but didn't bat an eyelid about the years of animal abuse that you committed, the thousands of animals that you killed for them. What did they think that yeah. was going to happen? We've got people who mow down emus out in the, you know, in the outback, people who are driving around and decide to knock kangaroos over for fun. They're all ex-workers or they work in a slaughterhouse. They grow up yeah. hunting and working in camel slaughterhouses in the outback. Um, You know, they go out and kill brumbies. They slaughter camels, donkeys, cows, pigs. And then when someone kills a a, a puppy or a dog, they're outraged. They they lose their their mind. And that caused you to want to commit suicide. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I couldn't connect the dots. I, I, yeah, I struggled. To you, it's no difference it's from killing a pig to, you know, seeing um, a dog uh, that gets mauled by a pig get shot to having your foster dad take a dog up to a hill where you dug a hole for $20 to shoot the dog in the head to going back and um, hooking up a rabbit that you'd caught and hearing that rabbit scream and go around the track for the people to go to the dog races, to the greyhounds, right? You did all of that so that they could benefit, so they could put their bets down, so that they could have a burger on um, Australia Day where they could talk about lamb, pig, calf, um, veal, and you kill a dog. The dogs were being killed anyway when they go to the greyhounds and they have a problem with you killing a dog and that causes you to want to commit suicide. It must have been so confusing for you. I, I, I couldn't connect. It took me a long time to, to connect that. So what happened with the vegan animal rights activists that did connect with you? Tell me about that. They were very loving. They were supportive. They were very compassionate. They took me in with welcome arms, gave me that crucial support I needed, that, that foundation. Uh, and a safe space where I could share my story. But there were some groups that uh, rejected you too. Yes, they yeah, they followed the media and the opinions of others and then rejected me back. And you spoke out against uh, animal abuse, um, slaughter on Meatworks pages. Tell me about that. What happened there? Yeah, I started to speak out on different farming pages, Meatworker pages, Hunting pages, my, I was getting the taste of my anger my, and I was turning my anger into passion and started to speak out against it and it was just a counter-reaction. The more I pushed to speak for the righteous, the more I got in return of anger and hate and just triggered emotions. How so? Well, I got abused, I got privately PM'd, trolled, all sorts of, I got predator trolled. What's predator trolled? Uh, Predator trolling ones, you're specifically targeted by an individual who just doesn't give up. This individual might have three or four different Facebook profiles, and if they get an eye in for a certain individual or a party, they'll just keep going and going and going until the point the police is called. And you did that? Yeah. What were they trying to get at? They, they wanted to kill me. They wanted to beat me up. They wanted to come after my family. For what? Bomb threats. Yeah, because I was I was triggering. I was speaking the truth. I was sharing what I thought was the truth on their page. About what really happens behind closed doors. Yeah. yeah. What what exactly goes on? You were speaking out now for the victims. Yes. Of all of those years of abuse where you were the oppressor and you were the perpetrator, you've yes. now moved into this world where well, let's be real, all of that whole world led to your such dark place that you wanted to commit suicide. And now coming out of the other side, you are trying to speak out the truth, not just to heal yourself, but to take penance. Seeking redemption, yes. And so then you spoke out about the animals. What were you saying about these uh, animals when you were speaking out for them on these Facebook pages? What were you saying? I was sharing my story from my view of what happened inside on a kill floor in representation of what goes through the animal's eyes in their views. And because of how I shared it, it caused a lot of reactions. I looked at it from what, how the animals viewed it. 
So what they were feeling, thinking, what they were going through, the potential fear and what I saw. Literally, I was sharing my nightmares. The nightmares I was having, I managed to catch and write and share publicly. And that was probably the most most uncomfortable thing I had done, but it was also the most triggering some of these people were reading. Why were they triggered? I think it's because they were facing themselves. They were looking at a sheer reflection of themselves through someone else's story. And where does the consumer sit in all of this? They sit across the table from themselves. Because they are the participants. They're paying for the whole... They're financing the whole operation. Exactly right. Huh. So people you know and people I know, family members, friends, they were participating in your attempted suicide. Yes, exactly right. I was part of a system and the system spat me out and I, I attempted to speak up and got stamped out. So then you moved into a different realm because you said something earlier that vegan animal rights activism can't just be the sole focus. There's another part to your journey. So I got involved with the Man Kind Project, which is a community of men, common men who come together and we are real and authentic with each other. And we support each other going through our stuff, whatever that stuff is in the current realm of our life or our world. The more I got involved with this men's work, the more I got a taste for recovery. And I got around real men, no egos, no authorities. It doesn't matter what point in life they came from, whether they were successful CEOs or having their second day out of jail. We're all in a community together getting real with one another. And this was my first taste of being real with myself. I progressed through that. I still do a lot of men's work to this day. And it wasn't until after July last year where I was formally initiated into the Mankind Project. I did a three-day full New Warrior training where I was challenged on many different levels, mentally, physically, and emotionally, to look within myself and to touch the shadow parts of myself, that's when stuff started coming together. My recovery was in place, but the dots didn't start to align till after July last year where it all came to fruition. Well, it's like, I could do something here with this. What can I do? I got around traditional tribal men who taught me the wisdom of the different types of warriors that live within ourselves, you know, the shadow warrior, the man who lives continuously in shadow and destruction, known as the shadow mission, which I was living previously in life, which led to my crisis. And then there was the light warrior, which was the type of warrior who had a one soul-minded focus or the tunnel vision focus on one cause that ignored everything and everyone around him to focus just on that light. That light, that, and that light only was the sheer light. And then the third type of warrior was the conscious, compassionate, or the new warrior was the intention was to, to lay out in the foundation of that weekend to help men evolve into that third compassionate warrior, which loved Mother Earth and all her animals, which respected Father Sky and the energy he produced and loved every single man within the community and helped grow one another. And it was the compassionate man that I evolved into, that compassionate warrior, which planted seeds to where I am today. And how did that manifest? What actions did you take? Well, the actions I learned from that weekend, it's like, well, if I'm to 
quickly recover from my crisis, I need to get around more men's circles. I need to get real within myself and start to share what's going on inside me and amongst other men. I was witnessing men in these circles pour their life out amongst other men. I was really inspired by some how deep some of these stories go within what was triggering these men, what trauma was the, these men going through. That catalyst was the, the spark to where the Second Chance Man is, well, is today pretty much launched. You did take some actions, though, because then that started leading you into speaking to prisoners, right? Yes, yes. My first idea came about, well, I want to work with people. And I thought about it again. I was like, well, what type of people do I want to work out? Where's the support at the moment and where isn't it? Then I looked at... I looked at the prisons. So I went to the prisons for ideas. And this is where I started to just randomly witness men sharing their stories openly and vulnerably. Some did, some didn't. Uh, there was no ego. There was no uniform. There was no badge. It was just two men having a yarn. How did you get into that? I cold call. I started cold calling local prisons. I was cold calling correctional services. My probation officer got me in. I got around and started off with local receptions at two jails, local jails that I that I go in and out of. And then that led to managers and then eventually it led to a supervised visit of a random man. That evolved over time to me going in every four to six weeks and just hearing a random man. What were you hearing from them? I was hearing all sorts of stories. I just let them let them speak their truth, what was going on for them and why they did what they did to get them where they were at that point in time. Did you notice any key elements? Yes, they were broken men. They were broken men in need of proper help and support. They didn't know how to, the basics of life, of asking for help or making the right choices instead of taking the wrong ones or what choices they knew or were conditioned to take. Dealing with trauma or dealing with anger in a healthy way instead of a negative way. Let's reflect... And let's have a look at what's happened because I want anybody who is non-vegan to connect to this. We have Craig Whitney here who has started our life as an innocent baby whose mother raised donkeys and to pay for them had to exploit them by breaking them mentally so that they would be submitting to having people ride their back. On the other side, you had a father who was forcing you from a very early age to cut open the testicles of innocent babies while they screamed and branded them, melting their skin essentially with a hot brand that um, branded them with a number and cut their ear. You felt sick and sad and disgusted by this, but you buried that down. Meanwhile, your parents were committing acts of violence upon you, but when you were removed from that situation, your whole world was again violent. Your stepfather took you in, had a good life, good family, but that element of treating those that were not human as no more than a product stuck with you. So out you go, pick up a rabbit, put them in a cage, 
and you still felt that feeling inside of you, this is wrong, this is disgusting, but you've got an adult figure telling you, no, this is the right way, this is how it's done, this is what we're going to do. You still felt sickened by it, but you have an authority figure telling you to do this. You hook up that rabbit, many of them, and they scream and race around that track, and you witness greyhounds tear them apart, and if they don't break them apart, and they don't get fast enough, you're paid $20 to go up the hill, dig a hole, and your um, foster father takes them up the hill, shoots them, animals that you connected with, and now you're disconnected. Moving forward, you go hunting with your friends because now you only see animals as, uh, you know, a pest. You move into the slaughterhouse industry and you witness the terror of all these animals that you have to bury deep down inside of you. But the one main thing that connects to you is looking into the eyes of an innocent baby as his life drains away from him that you now call shadow. And eventually that's one of the things that breaks you. And all of that has built up to a point where you kill a dog. And for all of those acts of violence, which you have been indoctrinated into, they were all done for people who consume meat and dairy. Think about it. People who will go down and pay for a donkey ride, who don't look through the eyes of the broken animal, for people who want a burger, people who want a steak, you are forced to commit acts of violence. It was the non-vegan consumer, and we're talking millions of them. People you know, I know, people who say, it's my choice to feed my children this meat. It's my choice. But they don't take responsibility as you took responsibility for the sheer amount of violence, secondary violence that is caused not only in the slaughterhouse, but outside the slaughterhouse. Exactly right. Right? Then you move forward where you have a partner tell you that she's just killed your baby, essentially, right? And now where are you supposed to be? This positive child is now a dark human being where everything is just violence and death. And you're thinking, well, what am I? This is so futile. What am I on this planet for? But you have to find this positivity inside of yourself. Someone reaches out to you who's a vegan and says, hey, there's a better way. And you start crawling through the darkness to that light. And the light is actually saving a life, not taking a life. And that's what makes life worthwhile. Because the more lives you save, the more inherently you get saved. The more light you bring to the world, the more warmth that you feel, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you find out more about these warriors and you're thinking, well, what more can I do? Now that I'm a, I'm, I'm a vegan and now that I'm removing these animals from my plate, now that I'm seeking penance, what else is there? I can save humans. And I can save humans that come from a very dark background that are now imprisoned and they're going to be released at some point. You don't want them to re-offend and you want to get their story and help them to connect. But meanwhile, you still have so much hatred from all the non-vegans that paid you to commit those acts of violence. There's anger. There's passionate anger there. It's like, what can I do in this community to disrupt culture? And this is the heartbeat of the second chance, man. Tell me about it. Tell me the second chance, man. What is... Well, I've developed my mission. My my mission, which I've embodied in my bones, is I create a world of transcendence by going, moving from hope to action with compassion in second chance beings. My absolute passion and my foundation is working with RSPCA cases, and eventually it will entail domestic violence. What are RSPCA cases? What's that? All those who have been charged criminally and sentenced 
by the RSPCA for acts of welfare breaches or cruelty charges because on the mental health spectrum, there is absolutely no support for these individuals. And if we as a community want to break the culture of this behaviour, we need to support them and teach them integrity and accountability and effectively look on the inside of what triggered this trauma and essentially break that pattern of behaviour so reoffending doesn't happen and we don't create a rinse and repeat scenario. So people who have committed acts of violence against animals, the cute yeah, ones that everybody hates, the, the cute ones that um, everybody rallies around. Mm. Yes, exactly. Not the cows, not the pigs, not the chickens, not the roosters, not the sheep, not the lamb, not the calves. That's, that's the foundation of the second chance man. Essentially, if we can break this culture, because you look at the courthouses, animal cruelty and RSPCA cases are legal tender. They're just common currency, like domestic violence, men, or yeah, violent men going through the courts. The faces may change, but the cases keep continuing. And the statistics just keep adding up and there's no break in the disruption. Mm, it just keeps going. Yes. And the community just keeps getting angry and angry and angry and just blaming the system. Well, they have a right to blame the system. The community blames the system. They get angry and angry at the system. They blame the system for not harsh, harsh enough penalties. The problem is the system, but it's also the community behind it because we have lost touch with our traditional accountability culture. We have moved to a penalty or a punishment-based society. Without accountability, you can't break behaviour. It's impossible. The, the sentencing just goes round and round and round. And in the second chance, man, I've, I've come and I've learned three very important principles over my journey of recovery. And the first principle is is having a safe space. I need, as a man, I need a safe space to unload in a non-judgmental environment. If whatever's on my mind, I need to de-suppress. I need to get whatever's on my mind out in a healthy way. Why? Because if I suppress my anger and emotions, I become a risk and a danger to myself. I become a danger to any immediate family around me. And I become a risk and a danger essentially to the community around me. I've been through this once before. I don't want to deal with it again. So essentially, this is the importance of having men's circles and women's circles for the women. I don't discount the women. Behaviour is not gender-based. We have these circles where people can come in and they can unload in a healthy way. That way, there's no suppressed trauma, there's no build-up, and there's, it levels the risk of a crisis happening. The second principle that I've learned is divergent planning or having multiple solutions for a plan of how I'm going to rebuild my life. And I think in multiples because life's going to throw stuff at me and just some solutions won't work. It's impossible. If we all are on a one-track mind, we can be derailed quite easily. And the third principle is the power of I. The power of I statements. I'm looking to teach ownership and accountability by embodying the power of I. If I'm challenged on my cases and I do from time to time get challenged, I own my circumstances. Like, yeah, I did that. I did that. That happened. That was a crisis that changed my life. The power of I, if we embody the word I, it's a very powerful statement. So the power of I, it's like it's owning. I own my stuff. Yeah, I own that. That's mm -hmm. me. That was, that was part of my life. 
That is part of my life. That's what changed me. They're the three principles that I have laid down and I'm essentially going out to mentor those effectively who have been affected by circumstances in their life. Accountability. Personal yeah. accountability. Everybody can hate the individual for committing an act of violence against an animal, but not take accountability of what got that person there. We are in a blaming society. There is no I in this society. It has to be retaught. Can you imagine if people just stopped consuming animals, which stopped the violence towards animals? How many workers would move to something more positive? And how much violence inherently do you think would be removed from society if... Everybody moved plant-based. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. If I could see a violent man turn away from his past behaviour, come into a circle of brothers, and instead of taking his own anger out on his loved ones or his animals, is to cry in front of other men and take his anger out on a pillow or a boxing bag with the support of other men and learn the fundamentals of changing his behaviour and move to a plant-based diet, that would be life-changing. That would be transformational. That is my mission. That is the heartbeat of the Second Chance Band. Transcendence. There are multiple violent industries in the slaughter industry. It's moving cattle. It's the slicing up of bodies. It's the tearing off of their skin. It's the hunting, it's um, hunting on the land, it's a whole range of things. If all of this was removed and everybody just changed their habits from instead of buying uh, dairy chocolate or instead of buying cheese or milk or meat and they just stepped one or two steps to the right and bought a non-dairy version, what do you think would happen? Well, I would be living in a more safer community. That would be the fundamental. I'd be living in a more safer, freer community. There'll be more respect for Mother Earth and her animals. They say that we learn violence from birth and we learn speciesism from birth, from our parents. As soon as we are taught that animals are different from us, we then get taught that somebody with a different colour is different from us. And yes. we start to treat them differently and have some feeling of superiority over that person or we're trained to say well that guy or that girl has less money than us or has uh, poorer parents than us or lives in a different suburb than us has a different religion than us and we believe that our position is much more superior and we learn it because of how we are indoctrinated to see a dog as different from a pig as um, a cute cat is different from a piglet or a calf. They've got four legs, two ears, one nose, a heart. They feel pain. They feel hopelessness. They want their families. They want their mothers. And each and every person has this opportunity to remove these beings from their plate and not just change their own diet, that's one part of it, but collectively changing the whole of society and the whole of violence, the whole of the whole prison system, how we treat dogs and cats and leave them at a pound. It would change the whole world entirely. You know, it, it, there you've you've really kind of um, uh, really kind of uh, got to me, Craig. I think the your story is just fascinating. Oh, thank you. 
Where to from here? Where to from here? Well, I'm writing a book at this point. It started off as my suicide journal, but has evolved into chapters of a book. Uh, It's a side project that I'm doing. I've launched the Second Chance Man. I've got a good team of mentors around me, helping me grow and develop in that. I'm very passionate about impacting culture. If, If I can impact the culture of animal cruelty and domestic violence, then that's my mission right there. If I can get into the jails, and I know I will, active as a speaker, um, and as a some sort of therapist, like I, I start uh, my criminal psychology degree in September. I've been accepted. I will do that, and then that's giving going to give me the opportunity to heal more men and maybe youth in the jails and detention centres, expose them to themselves, and that's my life as a mission. I want to become an impact to society. Is there a- any messages that you would want to get out there and that, um, you know, or lessons that you would want to get out to the listener? Yes, compassion. Learn that skill and show it wherever you can go because compassion heals no matter the circumstance, no matter what one's going through at that point in time. Always show compassion because you never know what life you might impact what family you may save and what community you may change. Always show compassion. Thank you so much, Craig. You're welcome. If you want to know more about Craig Whitney and the Second Chance Man, go to Facebook and search for Second Chances. That's C-H-A-N-C-E-R-S. And from here, you have a choice. Continue to contribute turning innocent children into violent adults and to contribute to the destruction of innocent beings and the world around you, all for an entirely unnecessary brief meal derived from exploitation of animals, vulnerable children and refugees, and participate in entertainment activities where animals were forced to be mentally broken for your pleasure. Or you can base your diet and purchases on kindness empathy and compassion to bring positivity and healing to the world around you and around your children. There are only two choices. Which choice will you make? To see more of Explore Life, subscribe to this podcast and head to YouTube and search for Explore Life Films and click subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening.